Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 1006. At the top of this week's episode, David Lorela is joined by Derek Gould of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch for his return to the podcast. The duo discuss things like Derek's own podcast, Nolan Arenado being the best all-around player in the National League, how Arenado compares to former Cardinal great and current coach Matt Holliday, how soon Jordan Walker may arrive with the club, and what the NL Central may look like in upcoming years. David and Derek also discuss Hall of Fame candidates like Bobby Abreu and Gary Sheffield, and how Derek listened to Fangraph's audio in recent weeks for insight as he looked to fill out his own ballot. You riffing on how you and Jay have done the ballots over the last few years, it just it was very helpful as I set pen to paper for my ballot, and I, I like to be challenged on some of those ideas, um, but I also like to hear just how different folks are set, are thinking through it and where they find their footholds of consistency on the ballot. Just, I really appreciate it. So this is, it was cool to get your invitation because it was just a few days removed from, you know, spending hours listening to a Fangraphs audio to catch up on the thinking about the ballot. In the second half, Ben Clemens invites Jay Jaffe to be the subject of a new series here on the pod called Fangraphs Backstories. And to help introduce it, I'm joined by Ben himself. Hi, Ben. Uh, hey, Dylan. How's it going? I'm doing well. So uh, tell us about this series that you're starting here on the podcast. So one thing that I always loved listening to before I joined Fangraphs was how did these people get here and who are they? Because I don't know, I just feel more engaged in stories when the writer isn't a generic byline and I know a little bit about them. So I thought I would just ask all my colleagues two questions. First, how did they get to Fangraphs? Just so you have an idea of how they got here and what their mind state is. And second, what's your favorite baseball memory? I think that's the question that I have most first asked baseball people that I've met. Sure. Or not first asked, but first asked after I am enough friends with them to be able to do that. It's not like, (laughs) hey, I'm Ben Clemens. What's your first baseball memory? And I just find those are really fascinating because everyone has a baseball memory that they had when they were a kid that just really has stuck with them throughout the ages. And I think that's a good way to relate to how people relate to baseball. Sure. And they're all going to be pretty different, probably. Exactly. We're all different ages around here, and we grew up in different places. But hearing baseball stories from each person makes it easier for me to put myself in their shoes, essentially. Yeah. And so for your your first guest on this series, you have Jay Jaffe joining you on this episode today. Yeah. And Jay was an ideal subject, really, to start with, because he is the longest tenured full-time Fangrass writer. We'll, We'll get to hopefully everyone in the course of this and someone on this podcast, actually, David Lorela has been at Fangraphs longer, but kind of as a, an on detail reporter. So Jay was the ceremonial first guy. And actually he joined Fangraphs as a full-time writer five years ago, almost to the day. So we talked yeah. about that, which was very neat. And he also has just great baseball memories. And, Absolutely. You know, he, as the resident hall of fame guy, it, it's no surprise that he's been fascinated by great baseball players his whole life. That, that's how you get into that beat. And it was a really fun time just talking to Jay about both the inside baseball of getting from baseball prospectus to SI to here and talking about growing up and falling in love with baseball on TV. Yep, absolutely. So we got that coming up in the second half. Before we get to Ben and Jay and David and Derek, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to visit the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only can you get your official Fangraphs swag, but you can also pick up an ad-free membership, good for yourself or as a gift for a friend. Yeah, ad-free memberships are incredible. I got one before I joined, again, and it's really useful. It is both the easiest way to use our website. It sings when you have an ad-free membership, and it's also a great way to support us, everything we do here, from articles to roster resource to podcasts. Fangraphs does a ton of stuff, and the best way to support us is by getting an ad-free membership. Yep, I agree 100%. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Happy 2023. I hope that everybody's new year is off to a good start. I am David Lorela, and my guest is Derek Gould, who covers the Cardinals for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Derek, thanks for making, I don't know if this is your second guest appearance on Fangraphs Audio, or if it's actually your third. They were saying that it's the third, though I'm not sure if the statute of limitations is up, if it's 2013. It's been, so I guess, uh, it stretches back. Were they even called podcasts in 2013? We've asked that before on ours. I wondered. 
Speaking of yours, we should actually plug your podcast, Derek, because I admittedly haven't listened for a few months. <laughs> That's fine. But it is one of my favorite podcasts, and it is... The best podcast in baseball. Though, you know, the reviews are not yet fully in. I mean, this definitely Fangraphs Audio is in the running. We just took the title before anybody else could. But yeah, uh, BPIB at stltoday.com. And it's something that started with... Uh, Bernie Miklas and I, um, Bernie Miklas, the columnist at the Post-Dispatch there for a long time. Um, he's now a radio host and, and writer for other sites here in St. Louis, but we started it 10 years ago, which seems, I guess it's coming into its 11th year now. So just, we, we often talk with, we called it a podcast back then, or we just called it an audiophile. Don't really know, but I guess we called it a podcast because we eventually called it the best podcast in baseball, but there for a few episodes, it didn't even have that title. Well, Fangraphs Audio, Derek, is the best podcast in baseball. Sure, but we we won't we won't quibble with that. No, I'm honored <laughs> to be here. I, this uh, I just uh, you you say it's been a few months since listen, and that's cool. Um, it's actually been like a few days since like I binged listened to Fangraphs Audio because of the interviews y'all did on the Hall of Fame ballots and hearing Travis and Enoch talk about like their thought process as first time voters and you riffing on how you and Jay have done the ballots over the last few years. It just, it was very helpful as I set pen to paper for my ballot. And I, I like to be challenged on some of those ideas. Um, but I also like to hear just how different folks are set, are thinking through it and where they find their footholds of consistency on the ballot. Just, I really appreciate it. So this is, it was cool to get your invitation because it was just a few days removed from you know, spending hours listening to uh, Fangraphs audio to catch up on the thinking about the ballot. And we can maybe talk a little bit of Hall of Fame before we get to Cardinals, Derek. But first, sure. I should I should make note of, and this is something that I just realized maybe 10 minutes ago, we're actually speaking on Thursday morning, is that, Derek, you are not only the first guest of the new year, your most previous appearance, what, you were the final guest in 2020. So I guess what you're doing is bookending a couple <laughs> of pretty strange uh, Major League Baseball season. It's not as strange as the 2020, of course, but post-pandemic, baseball has been been pretty interesting. I, I, I'm flattered by the fact that I was the last guest of a year everybody wanted to get away from. I think that's that's fitting, right? Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, <laughs> so, so let's, uh, people I think are interested in hearing, you know, what your Hall of Fame thoughts. I believe that you actually can't tell tell us exactly who you voted for. That has to go into the Post-Dispatch. But, you know, you mentioned just listening to our recent pods here. You probably have picked up on the fact that I am a Bobby Abreu bandwagoner. Mm -hmm. I believe you have voted for Bobby Abreu. I have. I'm big on trying to find comparables within classes, within ballots, within eras, right? And, you know, one of the things when I got my first ballot, it was the time of Mucina, Schilling, Smoltz. Those were three of the right-handers who were on there. And the more and more I did the research, the more and more I looked into it. You know, Smoltz had the time as a reliever, standout career. Um, Mucina had kind of the body of work you know, without like kind of that one great year. Schilling had the postseason and other exceptional performances. Um, but the more and more I kind of like drilled down, it wasn't like there was one who led every column or one that stood out in multiple columns of my research. It was more like, gosh, there's a lot of similarities between these guys. And so as you do that, you go, okay, well, if one's a Hall of Famer, then aren't they all? Or where do I draw that line? And that line is really hard because that line means that somebody is through the door at Cooperstown and then the guy on the other side of that line is looking into Cooperstown and there will always be that person. There will always be that line and that one person who puts the toe right up to it but doesn't walk into Cooperstown. And as a voter, gosh, and that that's the edge of the high dive for me, man. It, it kind of turns my stomach upside down just to think that, okay, am I the one defining that one guy who has to buy a ticket to Cooperstown? And so in those regards, it's like, okay, how, where is that line for me? And I have often thought and still think that Gary Sheffield is a Hall of Famer, um, just one of the more ferocious and exceptional right-handed hitters um, of his era, standout, obviously power, hit for average. I mean, he just, he, he was a feared presence at the plate. Um, and by many measures, his career is Hall of Fame worthy. 
and as I did the research, it's like, oh, where does he stand out from Bobby Abreu? And while Bobby Abreu didn't have the all-star games, he had that one fantastic turn in the home run derby where he pelted a whole bunch of us there in the auxiliary press box in Tiger Stadium, I believe it was. And, you know, he he had some really standout years, but not like not MVP years, not high in the voting for MVP. But, you know, just the whole body of work, the more I looked into it, the more he compared favorably with players who I thought were Hall of Famers, where I had drawn that line before. And I was like, I got to stay consistent. And for me, that's how, why I've ended, ended up voting for Bobby Abreu. All-round player could, you know, kind of fit that, the idea of a five-tool player. Has steals where other guys may have power, but still, you know, stands out in his ability to get on base, his ability not to make outs, his ability to provide extra bases, whether that was with power and damage or by stealing them. A strong defensive player. Uh, there just was a lot to like about the full form of his career. And when I sat down and lined it up against other guys, it just was hard to ignore that if I was going to vote for, you know, this group of players as Hall of Famers, he was in that group. I voted for Abreu my, you know, all three years. I wrote an article for Fangrass. It may have been a year ago. Um, I think I led a Sunday Notes column asking whether or not Bobby Abreu had a better major league career than Ichiro. And I, th I think I made a pretty good argument. I think Ichiro is a, certainly a no-doubt Hall of Famer. Yeah. You know, Japan, a lot has to do with it. But a lot has to do with, you know, pizzazz and the so-called fame factor. Sure. He is a much, I don't know, splashier player than Abreu. So, you know, and, that, and uh, Abreu is more of a... Oh, sabermetric favorite, you know, for lack of a better term. You know, then you have a Jeff Kent who really isn't. He's more of sort of like an old school home runs RBI guy. I voted for him last year. You know, I think uh, in looking at how Fred McGriff went into the Hall of Fame, and I voted for Fred McGriff too when I had a chance with him going into the Hall of Fame and the way he went in with the committee being, I think, unanimous, right? Weren't they unanimous with him as a Hall of Famer? I think there's room for all of that, right? Like the Hall of Fame can handle the greats who stand above all their peers, the guys who had great careers because of how sublime they were defensively, Ozzie Smith, for example, the guys who had great power careers, the guys who were learning how to better deal with relievers. I continue to kind of under, that was one of the reasons why I dove into the Fangraphs audios because I wanted to hear what y'all had to say about Billy Wagner specifically. Um, and, try to and I asked a lot about Billy Wagner both of players this past year and uh, and also of, of writers and other voters and asked a lot of myself to do better research about Billy Wagner for example but I think you know the hall is open to all this the scoundrels too we're not naive enough to say that there aren't already folks who would have you know cheated who are in the hall of fame so we have to take all that into account and so I think within that wide umbrella there's definitely room for a guy who led his position in home runs and power and won an MVP, and also a guy who didn't really register in those conversations and yet had just this superior all-round game. There's ways for us to appreciate all of that. Um, I think, you know, we see support for Scott Rowland growing, which I think is fantastic because he really captures, and he's the beginning of, he's not the last of it, but he's he really captures like this group of all around exceptional players who maybe aren't lopsided in the in the offense, but played the game in so many facets just excellently. I mean, I think like today, obviously, Nolan Arenado stands out um, soon. Adrian Beltre is going to race into Cooperstown. I'm speaking of third baseman because in a lot of ways, that's where the game has been been here. Again, Roland was at the beginning of it, but now we look at, you know, the the class of third basemen that have been there, say, the last 10, 15 years. And there there are some just standout all around players, base running, defense, offensive contribution, what we understand about offense now. So weighted runs created, OPS, these things, these guys are, you know, they're just, they're all around players. And I, I think Cooperstown has a place for all of that kind of production, as long as you stand out as among the cream of the crop at what you do. Speaking of Nolan Arenado, mm -hmm. obviously a Cardinal now, previously a Colorado Rocky. 
Matt Holliday was in his playing career. He's now the new bench coach of the Cardinals. Yeah, his playing career was Cardinals and and Colorado. There may there may have been a third team in there very briefly. The Yankees. The Yankees. Ah, and Oakland. Okay. Well, the bulk of his career, Cardinals, yeah. <laughs> Cardinals, Colorado. I'm going to put you on the spot here, Derek. Mm-hmm. Who was is was slash is better, Matt Holliday or Nolan Arenado? As a Hall of Fame candidate? I guess it that would be a fair way of putting it. I'm just thinking as a player, basically, if you could have either one for their prime years, who would you take? That's a tough question, but I'm going to stick with what I've said for several years, even before he became a Cardinal, that Nolan Arenado is the best all-around player in the National League. I'm not sure Matt Holliday would say that he was that at any point. In time. I think, you know, and this goes back to his Colorado days, I think what Nolan Arenado does at third base has changed how what's expected from that position and I'm not just going out on a limb there as a rider saying that you know I talked to Adrian Beltre who played an exceptional third base and he talked about that I talked to Chapman who plays a strong third base and he talked about that and I mean look at some of the things to me watching Nolan Arenado and I got a chance now to see it daily um, but I always watched it from afar because of my ties to Colorado and you know and, and going there a lot to to Rockies games and to be honest, my son is a Rockies fan, so we would talk a lot about it. He would update me on what the latest Nolan Arenado feat was, and if I hadn't seen it I, already, I would go be sure to see it. I think you know what, what he does is he plays third base like a guy who grew up watching Derek Jeter and the play shortstop with the jump throws, right, and saw some of the greats play shortstop, and then added what I can only describe as someone who played soccer for a lot of his youth, where he finds space, like a guy who scores goals, finds space, knows how to intercept the ball and and make a play with it. He just seems to have a timing for intercepting the, the ball in a way that like a great goal scorer does. And I, I, I think Nolan Arenado in that regard, you know, I mean, obviously – there's a lot of talent. <laughs> There's more and more talent pouring into the National League, uh, especially this year with all the spending going on. And you know, and you, you talk about Trey Turner. Certainly, you know, Carlos Correa has been up there. Francisco Lindor has been in that. I mean, he, he, there's been a lot, a lot of great all-round players. You know, Ramirez uh, stands out too. And then, of course, Mike Trout in the American League stands above almost everybody. But in the National League here over the last decade. I think it's been very clear that for a long stretch there, Nolan Arenado was the best all-around player, the most elite and leader at his position defensively, and oh yeah, a feared middle-order hitter. It is interesting, Derek, that that you were bringing that up, saying that you consider Arenado the best player in the National League. All-around, all-around player. All-around, correct. There are great hitters. And one of them is one I was planning to ask you about. I was planning to ask you, is Paul Goldschmidt the best hitter in the National League when you look at just bulk of work? He's been in the league, I believe, 10, 11 years. Uh, There has not been like a plus-plus offensive season. No. I mean, I think it's a a great, interesting best. I mean, so the National League has seen Mookie Betts join it. Um, He stands out, you know, another all-around player in in that conversation. You know, best hitter. I mean, it's hard to, you know, I, I'm thinking around. I mean, you got some, I mean, Freddie Freeman has been in the league this entire time. So he's in that conversation, right? He's got to be. You know, the steadiest and had the best 2022, I think that's Goldschmidt. You know, he's been a steady source of production for the almost entirety of his career. Um, you know, in a way that like, and, and usually in the conversation for MVP votes, you know, has, has finished second a couple of times, finally won it this past year. I think you could make that case. No one in the National League since what, 2013 has more opposite field home runs than him. Does only Nolan Arenado, and I know RBIs are RBIs, and I know, I think I know your feelings about RBIs, but maybe only Nolan has more RBIs than Goldschmidt in that span too. So yeah, I think you could I think you could make that case. I I don't know. I it seems like there are players who have had better years during that span, but maybe not a better span. 
Is that a good way to look at it? That is a good way to look at it. I just called up our leaderboard from 2012 onward. Juan Soto has the the highest WRC plus sure. in the National League. Yeah. Tatis Jr. does actually. Those are guys leaderboard. who haven't played half of Goldschmidt's career. Exactly. Though. Tatis only 273 games, Soto 617, but Goldschmidt at 1,572 games. Yeah, you know, is is tops. He's right in front of Votto, who of course has slid a little bit. Sure, uh, yeah. Free, Freeman is right behind them. Harper, Betts. So yes, yeah. Thanks. I mean, Harper, Harper is a great example of that. I mean, he's missed some time, but he would be in that conversation. Uh, Joey Votto. It's interesting because his like, for me, his peak years were head to head with Pujols at first base, right? Like that that sweet spot right before. Albert Pujols left the National League, and then it was kind of Anthony Rizzo and Joey Votto were the class of first baseman in the in the National League Central. Yes, and speaking of cent, this is another segue, Derek, that you walked right into for me. <laughs> you know, the Cardinals, I think, it's safe to say, are the class of the NL Central right now. Is that by default? Is that just because of the Central, or are, is it? Well, it stand out for the Cardinals. That's a that's actually a very good question. And you can address that along with the question that had just come to mind, which is which of the other NL Central teams is currently second best, but more <laughs> impo- but more importantly, which will be second best if not the best over the next say 3 to 5 years. Oh boy. So, the answer of who can be to take that last part about the next 3 to 5 years, right? The the answer to who can be, who can challenge the Cardinals for that, because the Cardinals are going to be in that position. The team that can challenge them for that is the Cubs. Will they? I don't know. Like, will the Cubs act like the biggest, baddest market in the division and start saying, we're, we're, we're done with this time zone and we want to compete with the Phillies and the Padres? Can do they get in a spot where they feel they can do that? Do they finally say they can do that? You know, maybe the Swanson deal is the beginning of that. And then they're outfitting, you know, him right now with Hosmer and Bellinger and, you know, kind of some lottery ticket type moves. Guys who have been good, guys who are coming back from either being non-tendered or released, um, but are all-stars in the past or MVPs in the past. You know, can they act like their market and their fan support would allow them to, whereas the Cardinals have acted beyond their market, um, but what their fan base because of ticket sales allows them to do. Um, I think the Cubs could really stand out, but I'm not sure they will. And, you know, I think that's the real question in this division is, is who is the one that says, well, the Titans of the National League are raising their payrolls to 210 and beyond, 215, 220, 220 million and beyond. Who's the one that makes that reach? The Cardinals could be. They're inching, a, a key verb here, towards 200 uh, million. And, you know, they got some young guys that they're going to, that they're really counting on, some young prospects that they're really counting on that they're going to have to, you know, they want to lock in. They'll do that at some point in time. They got openings in their pitching rotation that are going to be costly for them to fill. And those will be defining moves here in the next 12 months for who, how the Cardinals address the openings in their 2024 rotation that are significant. And, you know, pitching, we have seen the price of it climb. Uh, Certainty, for example, is overwhelmingly expensive when it comes to free agent starters. So how do the Cardinals go about addressing that? Um, That will define whether or not they are in hold of the division. I think as things stand right now, the Brewers are the team closest to the Cardinals. I'm not really sure how close that is. A trade of one of those starters that leads their rotation would really upend where the Brewers fit in this division. And for me, that makes the Cubs the most compelling kind of challenger right now to the Cardinals. You know, down the road, you could see the the Reds, the outline of the Reds talent coming into play, right? Some very intriguing pitching there. But I don't I don't know, you know, that the, there's not a team in the next five years considering then I'll I'll just pick that arbitrary because that's the window of like Nolan Arenado being a Cardinal that's as positioned as well to take utter control of this division as, as the Cardinals are. And that is definitely a reflection on the division, not the Cardinals, because the Cardinals 
Don't have a rotation yet for 2024, and I'm saying this. So I, I think it's a, a really odd division in the sense that, you know, the Cardinals spend and play and have the superstars and have the history and have the standards, and they have a lot of things going for them. And they are being challenged to join the larger spending National League teams to keep up as far as a pennant contender. And then you have the Cubs who have the market size, have the fan base, have the great destination ballpark, all that stuff. Um, And everybody just wonders, when will they act like it? You mentioned prospects, Derek. You know, the Reds have some very good prospects. Pittsburgh does as well. Yeah, I don't. But how long will they keep them, man? Like that's isn't that always the question with the Pirate? I mean, Brian Reynolds is one of the best players in the division and a excellent player who can help a contending team. I'm not sure he's like a guy who lead a contending team, but you put him on a contending team, like put him on the Mets, and how good are they? Put him on the Cardinals. How much better does that make that lineup? Put him on the Cubs right now, and how much better does that make that team? I mean, he's just and. It's just the same story. So how do we know that O'Neill Cruz a few years down the road won't be the same story? And in St. Louis, there are a couple of outstanding prospects, uh, two of whom I talked to in the Arizona Fall League. Oh, yeah. Jordan Walker and Mason Wynn. From what I can tell, Jordan Walker may well be in St. Louis at some point in the coming season. Yeah, could be April. Yeah. April, wow. I mean, it could be. I mean, they, they they've... They've not hid the fact that they want to at least open up the opportunity for him to compete in spring training for a spot. Um, There'll be lots of playing time for him available there early on with the World Baseball Classic. And so many of the Cardinals going to play in that. So he'll have an opportunity to play a lot of outfield. Um, So will, uh, well, I don't know about Tyler O'Neill might be off at the World Baseball Classic. But um, so will Alec Burleson, you know, these young guys who are competing for jobs. So will Juan Yepes, possibly, possibly. We'll see if he, where he fits with the World Baseball. But the time will be there for Jordan Walker, definitely at first base in the outfield. They'll give him a long look in the outfield to see if that's a, a spot that he can play and play regularly. Um, he did well there in his transition. You saw him play, I would imagine, outfield there in the Arizona Fall League. You know, good enough to do it and a live bat. And it's been 22 years since a player of that kind of production arrived at spring training and took a roster spot by storm. Um, But the Cardinals at least want to be open to that. They don't want to rely on him doing that, but they, they want to keep in mind that he can. And if Jordan Walker does end up at first base, which is something I hadn't heard, he would probably have the best arm of any first baseman in the <laughs> major leagues. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how soon that'll be for first base. I mean, Paul Goldschmidt's but, got it for a while, but for sure. they need him to play the outfield. But yeah, if he, yeah, you're right about his arm. I mean, he he may eventually fade to left field, right field, or first base in the. I don't. You know, there'll be. I'm just saying there'll be playing time at first base for him because Goldschmidt will be off at um, at the World Baseball Classic. And with Walker's bat in mind, he is joining a team that has made a change at hitting coach, mm. which caused a lot of buzz over over the winter. So what can you tell me about Jeff Albert out, uh, Turner Ward, I guess not technically in, promoted? Yeah, or returning to uh, to a role he's had with other teams. Um, you know, Turner Ward is a, has been a major league hitting coach with other teams and now is back in that role with the Cardinals, so a real experienced guy. He connects well with hitters. was was a real necessary addition for the team. Working with Jeff Albert, uh, Jeff Albert was hired to overhaul and modernize the Cardinals' entire approach to hitting. And in a way, I'm not sure if he would say it, but he, there was always kind of this conversation, especially over the last say few years. Was, was he miscast? Right? Was was Major League hitting coach the title? They really had to give him to lure him from Houston, but would it have been better if he were kind of like the team's overall offensive coordinator? Because the things he put in place, the folks that he brought with him, the advances that the Cardinals made in hitting infrastructure, tech, you know, some of the hitting camps that they did, the the things that they were doing with young hitters. Um, you know, Mason Wynn is one of the young prospects you spoke to right in the Arizona Fall League. Like his growth as a hitter is really essential to him staying as a shortstop and not, you know, ultimately moving to the mound, but it was there. And in speaking to him during spring training, he talked about just the kind of focus 
and the one-on-one attention and explanation he got and the use of tech that he got at the hitting lab down there in Jupiter, Florida, that helped him kind of unlock who he was and understand who he was and then maximize that and give him a better approach at the plate, give him a swing that was more fit towards his biomechanics. Because, you know, he he was like, there was a time where I thought I was Jordan Walker. I'm not Jordan Walker. I don't need to hit like Jordan Walker. I got to hit like Mason Wynn. And that was all, you know, his his growth as a hitter. Was, and same with Alec Burleson and Brendan Donovan, um, you know, Nolan Gorman. The, these young hitters, they are all kind of the first wave of player. Well, first and second wave, I should say, of players who are coming out of the revamped and overhauled approach that Jeff Albert brought in. You know, he is leaving at the end of his contract. Um, you know, there were multiple reasons for a given. Um, he did face a lot of scrutiny, a lot of criticism, both from the media and from the social media and from Cardinal fans. He felt like he was kind of the focus of a lot of that, both the credit and the blame, whereas what he wanted to oversee was a lot of interdepartmental work that included like the department of performance, um, you know, just a different area, minor leagues, all that stuff. And he said a lot of the focus was just on one individual and how unappealing that was. Um, and he had an opportunity to, let's be honest, he had an opportunity to leave after being the hitting coach for a team that had, you know, two of the top three MVP finishers, um, had Lars Newtbar, who was getting a lot of attention, um, for his second half, Brendan Donovan, who was a, one of the finalists for the Rookie of the Year. There was a lot of offensive performance from individuals um, that if you were a hitting coach and you your contract was up and you wanted to kind of create the next spot for you, you could see how your resume would shine a little brighter after a year like that. And, you know, it's not, a, it's not lost on me that the job that he has with the Mets is kind of the one that we always asked if maybe that was the one that he – would have with the Cardinals eventually um, where it wasn't in the dugout, but it was definitely influencing the overall organization. And we are running short on time, Derek. I have two more things and maybe I will flip flop. That's a very polite way of saying that I'm wordy, David. Thank <laughs> you. Hey, I, I think you have travel coming up today, Derek. So. I do. I do. Yeah. yeah. We can talk as long, as long as you want, but you <laughs> just brought, you just brought up the Mets. They are of course spending crazily as a few teams are. The Red Sox yesterday uh, reportedly came to terms with a 11-year agreement with Rafael Devers. I know it's 311 million. I think is the the report that has really become almost par for the course mm. in in baseball right now. Is like long contracts for for big money, and this is actually following the owners locking out the players a year a year ago, ostensibly because they can't afford to pay players. So, what do you make of of this whole thing? Well, for, first and foremost, there's a lot of money in the game. And we're in that honeymoon period following labor strife where the the CBA is new and fresh. Um, I think some of it, too, a lot of it is driven by the fact that, you know, stadiums are full and the schedule isn't isn't crunched. You know, you have all these factors where you had the empty stadiums of 2020, the limited capacity of 2021, and then the, the lockout to begin 2022. Now we're all past that and the game is flush with and and just to be candid coming out of a season that had you know Albert Pujols hit a 700th home run and Aaron Judge had a season for the ages and there was there just was a lot of exciting thrilling captivating baseball um you know here locally in St. Louis it was very clear that that team helped a, tremendously by Albert Pujols and Yadier Molina's final year and by Pujols's performance in that final year just really captured the imagination again of the fan base. And I think, you know, that St. Louis wasn't alone in that and where that was happening. So you have a lot of interest, a lot of enthusiasm and the money that comes along with that funneling into this honeymoon period um, following the labor strife and labor disagreements. So um, that's created along with the, the striking of the Steve Cohen match, a lot of money and a lot of spending in the game. And a lot of teams um, really, especially in the National League, 
really pushing the uh, the spending and the 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 excitement to chase after free agents. I think you know a couple things are happening with it. You know, obviously the length of the contracts are in response to some of the size of the shorter contracts, right? You see like Scherzer got and Verlander got and everything like that. So these links of these contracts are also kind of fitting under the new parameters of the CBT and the trend in that regard. Um, I also think there's some calculus there that some teams have done that, you know, teams used to do with, or at least teams I talked to, I'm not sure all teams did, but some teams and Cardinals would be included in this. What they did when they thought about long-term pitching contracts is all right, if you if you pay this guy over six years this much money, how does it average out over five years? Because, you know, injuries are going to happen. And can you count on, say, that level of production for five years, you know, and make that deal valuable to the team? And I think you're seeing some of that, right? Like where whether it's front-loaded or whether it's back-loaded or what, whatever the AAV is, I think you're seeing some of the calculus being, okay, this is going to be a 10-year, 12-year deal. But what's the average amount of value expected in the first eight years of it? And where does that dollar sign go um, so that you kind of know like, okay, for the, for the first part of this contract, we're going to get that value of production. And by the end of the contract, as that salary is still there, inflation and all that stuff will have taken place. And that salary will be less of a fact, less of a percentage of the overall payroll. And that's okay because you're counting on less production from that player in those out years. And the Cardinals are not going to be matching the offers made to the DeGroms, Rodons, Verlanders, which means that they need they aren't. to... They, I mean, they need to have some kind of, to be blunt, they're going to have to figure out if they're going to, if they're never going to do that. And if so, then how do they get by? That That's the reckoning that they're at, to be honest. No, for sure. And because they have not done that, at least this year, right. this offseason, you mentioned the pitching issues earlier on. So I know that there are some pretty highly regarded, uh, you know, pitching prospects like Tank Hans, you know, high ceiling, but mm-hmm. 20 years old, not close. I believe this past season's first round draft pick yeah. was, you know, he's probably not He's a few years away. Chirpy? But what I don't know if he's a few years away. We'll find out. That's a good question. It's a really good question. Okay. He is a college guy, so I yeah. suppose he could be soon. You he's know, but, funky. But, but you have guys like uh, Liberator, was like Graceffo, mm-hmm. McGreevy, who I mm-hmm. believe are in their, you know, maybe 22, if not 23. Yeah. Are any of them likely to move into the rotation as early as this season? Yes, if they're needed. Um, you could see – we'll. You know, Thompson, Zach Thompson, a former first round pick out of Kentucky, guy who set the strikeout records there, had a strong year as a lefty reliever this past year. And the Cardinals are talking about as if he's going to be part of the bullpen, um, maybe even a prominent part of the bullpen, depending on whether or not they Mm -hmm. go and sign a free agent for that role. But, you know, you could see a series of events where he might get a look as a starter, um, leapfrog Libertor for that chance. They're still high and hopeful for Libertor. He, he learned a lot this past year, and so did they, about like how does his stuff play at the major league level, and some adjustments need to be made there. Now, he's got the athleticism and the ability and definitely the acuity to, to want to learn how to do that, and I think this, this is then the, the big year for him, especially the start of the year, for how does that come together and does that give him a better chance to compete in the majors, um, what they've worked on this winter with him. You know, Graceffo, for sure, I wouldn't dismiss Palante in that group either. Um, You know, he spent the entire season this past year as, uh, you know, in the majors, had a few spot starts in there. They did give him a run in the rotation. There's some thought as to how he would play as a starter. Um, McGreevy's, you know, definitely a guy who's going to make some noise you expect in spring training and define where he's going. You know, they, they have numbers to throw at the openings, right? So it's a question of from that quantity, how many show the quality necessary to take that job? And if there is need and they have to roll, I guess it would be eight deep in this regard. If they have to go to their eighth guy, then who's ready to be that guy? There'll there'll be a lot of elbowing for position in spring training for who is that seventh and well, actually eighth. It would be that eighth guy because you got to figure that Dakota Hudson and possibly Drew Verhagen are sixth and seven going into the 
going into the spring. Yeah, let's close, Derek, with with you. What you just mentioned about Cooper it, it, is it uh, Jerpe? Jerpy, Jerpy, Jerpy. You mentioned funkiness. So yeah, I am not that familiar with him. I assume you're talking arm slots. So yeah, let's close on a funky note, and you can tell me about uh, Jerpe. Yeah, uh, he's uh, you know there's 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 a little. I, I'm I'm hesitant to do the the comps, but there's probably a little Chris Sale, a little Andrew Miller there more than a little maybe and you know just in how his mechanics unfold from the left side and how uncomfortable that can be for hitters and then the the spin rate all checks out and everything like that it's one of the few times i'll tell you this like you know going into the draft doing the draft preview and everything like that you know you know you know how inexact the draft is right i mean if your team's not picking first it's very unlikely maybe even second, but the randomness of what follows, you can't really say what a team is going to do in 15 to 25 or 30, right? You, you say, well, here's a group of guys, but you know who they're going to draft. But I only mentioned one name and it was Jerpy in my preview. I said, this is the kind of guy that the Cardinals are looking for because he just had a lot of the metrics that they were talking about and the strikeout rates and just the, the, just the whole look of you know, how they've tried to acquire lefties, how they've tried to use lefties, what they're looking for in pitch type and pitch dynamics. He just, he, to borrow a phrase from them, he checked all the boxes and uh, then that's the pick. So I'm, I'm going to take a victory lap on that, if you don't mind, David, that the, it was the one guy I mentioned and that's the guy they picked. And, and in part because like the way he, it's hard to describe, you got to see it to kind of believe it. But once you see it, you will know like, oh my gosh, that's an uncomfortable at bat for a hitter. And it's how those pitches play when the best hitters see it over and over again that will determine how quickly he moves. But they, I mean, there's a chance he could move fast. Um, as protective as they were of his arm coming out of college and, you know, the innings total this past year, I'm, I'm really eager to see not just where he starts this coming year, but where he is six weeks into the season. And if uh, Jerpe's, his performance comps at all down the road to Miller or... Uh, oh, my God. I, that's why I'm sale. Yeah, yeah I, I think that Cardinals fans will definitely want to take a victory lap with you. That's, yeah. That would be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm always, I mean, I, I, you always find these comps that are like the high-end guys, and, you know, I want to be careful of that. But, you know, you think back to... I mean, I remember seeing young Andrew Miller there with the Marlins... Not as familiar with young Chris Sale, but you watch video of, of Jerpy and you can see it. Super. Derek, we are way over time, so let's take a victory lap into, ah. what, the closure of uh, of this segment. Sounds good. Yes. Happy New Year to, to everybody, and thanks for... Uh, Thanks for the invitation, man. It's nice uh, chatting baseball with you. I uh, I did. I did. I didn't know if this was video or not. So I did sport my Fangraphs Arcade t-shirt, my beloved, uh, you know, with the old kind of 8-bit logo on it. Outstanding. I love it, Derek. Yeah, ne- next time maybe we'll uh, we'll segue into video just for <laughs> us, just so Derek can, sh- can no. show off yeah. his garb. Yeah. Hey, Derek, man, thanks again for coming on. You bet. Uh, happy, happy travels. I know you're jumping on a plane today. Yes. And uh, to all of you listeners, thanks for tuning in to Fangraphs Audio. Hello, and welcome to the first segment of Fangraphs Backstories, which is something we're going to be doing this off season, where I, Ben Clemens, talk to Fangraphs writers and staff members about you know, essentially their backstory. How did they start up at Fangraphs? What is their favorite baseball memory? Like, how should you think about their characters? And for the first installment of this, I'm joined by Jay Jaffe. Hey, Jay. Hey, Ben. Happy New Year. Thanks. Happy New Year to you, too. You know, there's no baseball going on right now, but I have always just really enjoyed Whenever we meet up in person, I just learn so much about all my colleagues and everyone's so interesting and I mostly I just see a byline. And so I thought it'd be really fun to just talk to people about, you know, like them and baseball, essentially. Not like, what'd you write last week, which is also very fun and which we'll do frequently on this show, like right. always. But, you know, like, give me the bigger picture. And so, Jay, you have graciously agreed to do the first one of these. And I laid it out really quickly, but essentially, I'm just going to ask you first Hey, Jay, how'd you start at Fancrafts? Oh, boy. It's, it's, I guess it's a bit of a long story, but I think I could probably condense it here to, to the appropriate length. 
it's funny because there's a point in my professional development that I probably would have bristled at the notion of writing for fan graphs because I was uh, writing for Baseball Prospectus at a time when uh, the rivalry, rivalry between the two sites was maybe at its peak. And it really did feel like a rivalry, especially, you know, because BP had been around for, I don't know, over 10 years before Fangraphs started getting a lot of attention. And BP was always so disorganized and undercapitalized and, let's face it, not well run. You know, (laughs) being the first mover has some advantages and some disadvantages. But one of the big disadvantages is... That it can, it's often very disorganized because you're the first one to do it. Yeah, and it was it was just a, you know the just the way it was set up you know behind the paywall you know limited the exposure and uh, you know I, I think there's the general drawbacks of, of being an early adopter you know and the public wasn't necessarily totally ready for for that approach or only a, a niche element of the public was. But long story short, I, I you know I was I was writing regularly for for BP. I want to say early, you know, I came on staff there in 2007, had begun contributing about four years earlier after starting up as a blogger with my own futility infielder, kind of making my name for my Hall of Fame coverage. In, I think during the 2009 season, ESPN was doing uh, this, their inside, they launched their insider platform and had a baseball prospectus contributing, I don't know if it was once a week or once, once every two weeks or something, to articles that were paywalled there. And that would, I think, uh, you know, were exclusive or, or, or wouldn't run on the BP site until later. And that was pretty cool. It got us, uh, I think, some extra subscriptions and some extra attention. And the thing worked so well <laughs> that uh, uh, ESPN then invited Fangraphs to join the party as well, um, which I don't think BP knew of until, or I didn't certainly didn't know of, uh, until I accompanied Kevin Goldstein, yes, the same Kevin Goldstein, who was our, our colleague uh, during the, uh, the 2021 season, went up to Bristol for a so-called baseball summit that involved, you know, most of their writers and contributors and whatever. And we heard about this plan. And I remember I, I got a write-up with one of the ESPN, ESPN editors who had been handling my stuff, but he was going to stick around up there after. So I needed to ride back to New York. And as it turns out, it was David Appleman who gave me the ride back. And I don't think I really knew David at that point. I think, you know, beyond just, hey, hey, how you doing? Right. Like I know your name, but that's it. Yeah, yeah, you know, and 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 I, you know, as as much as I was kind of pissed, you know, with the way things unfold had unfolded at this meeting here, we sort of felt blindsided that oh, you know, our little you know perch is being threatened by this this upstart. David was very friendly, and of course, he's given me a free ride back to New York. And I think that you'd have to check with David, but if I remember, I think there was a problem getting his car started. It was it was incredibly <laughs> cold up in Bristol, and I mean it. Winter Bristol. That sounds bad. I can't remember if he was locked out of his car or if he or or if he couldn't start it. But it took a while for us to get going. And then you know we just chatted for a couple hours on the way back to to New York. And you know it was a very very friendly conversation or whatever. And I think somehow I think I ended up leaving my gloves in the car and I had to go back to Midtown or or wherever to pick the gloves up from the apartment where his parents lived. If I'm remembering this. But anyway, it was all it was all very friendly. And then you know fast forward a few years later, I got when I was at uh, Saber Analytics, I got invited to you know a FanGraphs drinks event and. Over the years, got invited to similar things in, in, in New York. By this point, I was, I had left BP and, uh, which I did in, in early 2012 and, uh, was writing regularly at Sports Illustrated. Yeah. And uh, Sports Illustrated is still, I think, the coolest byline you can have as a sports writer. Like I know that in the past year or two, it's fallen on hard times off and on, but man, Sports Illustrated. I read that magazine every week when I was a kid until it stopped being a paper magazine. It's kind of an aside, but yeah, that's no, just it awesome. was. It, it was very cool. They had, they had they had hired me to start a, a daily baseball blog, and I had the URL, and it was just me writing for this first year, MLB.si.com, which was the <laughs> coolest thing. I would have gotten so that good. tattooed on myself if I could have. <laughs> That's so good. And uh, by this point, the uh, Cold War Fangraph baseball perspective had kind of died down, right? Yeah, it, it had, and and you know, especially once I once I got to. You know, once I got to SI and I was, you know, I, I could freely quote from Fangraphs if they had the, the information I wanted. I could quote from BP. I was still defaulting to BP flavored stats if I needed to go advanced stats. 
you know, they left that entirely up to my discretion. The idea yeah. was to, you know, bring advanced stats into a daily baseball blog. And so it was using warp the P, you know, and their, their flavor of stuff. But, you know, by that point I was, I, I was outgrowing BP and I was so frustrated with their, with how they handled the Hall of Fame stuff. They never had built me any kind of platform for Jaws, despite the fact that, you know, I introduced it there in 2004. And when I ran into Sean Foreman at uh, Sabre Analytics, I asked him, hey, would you be interested in, in hosting a war-based version of Jaws? And he was like, hell yes. And, you know, started building that into, you know, almost uh, almost exactly the form you see it today, other than, you know, a few tweaks here and there, including the uh, the golden spike of, of baseball analytics, was, which was the uh, agreement between Fangraphs and BREF on a, a single replacement level, which I think happened in 2013. You know, anyway, over time, things had, had sort of thawed, you know, in terms of my, you know, my feelings towards, towards fan graphs were, you know, were fine. I started to make some friends among the writers, not like close friends, but just, you know, you know people I, I, I would, you know, see at the winter meetings and say, hey. Baseball acquaintances, yeah. Yeah, just baseball acquaintances. And you know how it is at the winter meetings. You're, you're, you're not, you don't feel like rivals. You're just like, no. you know, friends who are working for other outlets. And uh, I think one of the really funny things is in 2016, Fangraphs did a, a, an event at the Staten Island ballpark. And they did a women in baseball panel of some sort that had several non-Fangraphs people involved, including Meg Rowley, who was then still at BP, and my wife, Emma Spann, who uh, was at SI and was, at the time, very pregnant. I believe uh, Dan Zimborski also showed up from ESPN. Uh, don't remember if he was on that panel or on some other panel. Ben Lindbergh was there hawking. The only rule is it has to work. And uh, it was it was interesting just because it, it was, uh, you know, in terms of Meg and Dan and myself all being there. I was going to uh, say, perhaps you know, no one you named still works where you said they worked then. Yeah, I mean, it, for, it foreshadowed a lot of movement. So then in 2017, as my time at, at, at Sports Illustrated continued, there was a lot of cost cutting and layoffs. And in, I think it was the fall of 2017, early fall of 2017, they whacked my editor, Ted Keith. I think I'm remembering this correctly. God, it may have been even the year before. But that was pretty demoralizing because he was the one who I'd worked with actually even before the ESPN relationship. I'd, I'd worked with him a few times when BP had a content agreement with SI. But we'd worked on a daily basis for, for years. And uh, I think John Taylor was actually uh, doing some, some of the editing work as well. But they whacked Ted, uh, who'd been there forever, whose father had been there at SI forever. Jeez. And it was pretty clear that, like, things are going to here. Yeah, you see one shoe fall and, like... Yeah, and, you know, rounds of cost-cutting. And, you know, Emma was feeling it on the magazine side. And she worked in the office, so she was privy to a lot more conversations, and you know, about the potential suitors and everything like that. And I think the company sold to Meredith in, like, November of 2017. And we were both just like... Look, it's a, it's, we're taking a risk working for the same company here. We ought to start thinking about, you know, quote unquote, diversifying the, the income portfolio here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we both, you know, started, started thinking about looking around and, um, yeah, that makes sense. Like, yeah. It was, you know, it was just, you know, we were demoralized and, and, you know, we could see the handwriting on the wall. And Emma has, will, will tell you, she always, she's always prided herself on knowing when it's time to leave various companies and be one, one step ahead of, uh, the Grim Reaper, but on January 1st, 2018, she was approached by the former SI managing editor, Paul Fichtenbaum, who uh, had gone to start up The Athletic or had, you know, to head The Athletic's uh, baseball, or I guess probably more than that, more than just baseball, but he invited her to interview for the baseball mm-hmm. managing editor position. And that was like legally the first day that he could actually approach SI talent. So it was pretty funny that, that like, boom, you know, she got, she ended up getting the job. The day after that, Fangraphs posted a job notice that they were hiring full time. And I was like, oh, wow, I should get on this. And I emailed David Appleman and said, hey, you know, I'm interested in this. Really need to keep this hush hush. Um, let me yeah. get you some information. And, you know, I think I, I think I had clips. I'm not even sure if I actually had to send clips because, you know, he was like, oh, sure. And obviously, yeah. this is totally confidential. Everyone's heard of Jay Jaffe at this point. Like, you know, I think a lot of people for those uh, writer searches are somewhat unknown. But yeah, I mean, I've read your byline for, I mean, a long time before you were at Fangraphs. 
Yeah, like I think you might have been the most known person to join the site as a writer ever. So yeah, yeah I, I it's it's funny. I I never thought of it in those terms, but boy, when when David Appleman, uh, you know, he was in he it turned out he was going to be in New York the next week the next weekend. I think you know, and and we met at a coffee shop and talked for about ninety minutes. And and you know, as it was at SI with my interview at SI, you know, I left the interview feeling like I think this job is mine. Hey. You know, we didn't talk money or whatever, but I was like, God, I, I think I, I think I'm actually going to get this, and I think what's what's going to happen. But it sort of, you know, it sort of took a little while to unfold because I first wanted to see how Emma fared with her job search, you know, yeah. and uh, I wanted to give SI a chance to to match. I figured, you know, if Emma left, I might have more leverage to stay, you Makes know, sense. and get get a significant bump in salary. Yeah, you've already diversified, so. Yeah, they were, you know, but they're, they were in a situation where, you know, they, they couldn't hire me full time. I'd been a contributor, not a full time writer. I had been basically working on a contract basis for five years. And unfortunately, I think they, you know, we'd never really consummated, you know, to a full time situation. So I didn't have insurance and, and whatnot. And it was just, they couldn't make that move at that point. And I kind of sensed that that was going to happen. But, you know, I tried to get as much as much out of it as I could. And, and you know, in the end, it was it was pretty clear that uh, if I got offered the job by by Fangraphs, I was I was going to take it. And yeah, David Appleman called me and said, yep, it's yours if you want it. And I was like, hell yeah, let's do this. And um, boy, it's worked out really well. You know, I'm coming up on five years here. In fact, it'll be, I guess, let's see, today is January 3rd. So, geez, it was uh, five years ago yesterday as we as we speak here. Uh, that uh, that ad was posted uh, <laughs> maybe five years ago today that I sent that uh, you know, that I responded. Well, what better first installment? Yeah, I, I really <laughs> didn't even think about that until this late in the conversation. But yeah, and I, I joined in in mid February. I think I had had some travel announced in early February. Had uh, a trip to Mexico planned with the family, Ooh, so nice. I got you know a bit of breathing room, changing jobs, and uh, started in mid February and been rolling ever since. Over a thousand articles later. And uh, really proud of you know the, as I'm as proud of the work I've done at Fangraphs as I am you know at my other stops, and it's just been it's been a great fit. And I'm always uh, amazed at just how much there baseball there is to learn, even when you've been writing about it for 20 years, and seeing all the the smart people you know on staff and as contributors who, who you know who, who come up with new ways to look at things or help interpret the, the tools that we have is just you know it, it keeps this job fresh. So. Yeah. That's my kissing the company butt here. <laughs> and, uh, also, just, you know, I, I, I'm really lucky to be able to do what I do. And I'm, I don't know how you get this job and not be grateful for it. Yeah, couldn't agree more. A quick aside before I, I bother you for more memories. I think that's one very cool thing about Fangraphs is that, like, there are so many different perspectives and different ways that people got here among the full-time staff and the contributors. And, like, everyone got here differently, but everyone gets along really well. And it's kind of crazy to think, I think... Either you or Dan has been here, I mean, you know, Appleman aside, obviously. Right. As a full-time writer, the longest. I mean, Appleman isn't a writer. I think I, and, yeah, I was on staff when Dan joined. He he joined in mid-2018. Yeah. And I knew Dan a little bit by that point. I was really excited when we did a, a, a Fangraphs group getaway to Denver. And I think that was where David told us that, or, or maybe he just told me as an aside that, that Dan was coming on board. And yeah. I was DMing with Dan for, for hours over what a good move this was going to be. <laughs> yeah, well, it has worked out, I think, really well. And one thing that is really cool to me is that now when I think of Jaws, I think of Fangraphs. And I feel like you've kind of like transcended sticking it with one website. And now Jaws is just, it's Jay Jaffe. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's funny you mentioned that. Because one of the things that David Appleman mentioned or we discussed in the um, the interview, he was like, look, I wouldn't expect you to move Jaws to our platform. And I was like, okay, cool. We're good. You know, like that was... I guess I was prepared to consider the possibility if it was make or break, but that was pretty far down on the list. But that wasn't even an issue, and it's never been an issue in terms of you know my my citation of BREF stats. And you know I think he understood why I was doing it, and you know and, yeah. and happy to let the two things coexist, and happy to you know give me. I mean even SI was you know was happy to give me as much space as I wanted, you know to do the to do those profiles. And, and you know obviously David saw those as a significant asset yeah. you know, to add to the fangrass fold. But yeah, it's it's cool that I mean it's I you know I love the fact that I've been able to make that a staple of my year and a staple of Fangraph's winter offerings and to get the vote while here. I mean, that both David yeah. Laurel and I, who were at BP 
together when we got uh, into the BBWAA, you know, to both be at Fangraphs and, and uh, you know, reach the 10-year mark where we got the ballots has uh, been really cool. And yeah. it illustrates the evolution of the advanced stat uh, uh, media uh, subset here, I guess. It does. I'm also very excited to hear Lorela's backstory in the same way. Well, this is the question that I'm actually most dying to ask everyone. I love the inside baseball stuff, but I also love just talking about baseball memories. And so, Jay, what is your favorite baseball memory? Boy, you know, you ask me this question and on any given day, and I might give you a different answer. Certainly, I think I would, at some point, I would, you know, I might mention the Dodgers winning the 1981 World Series or the 88 World Series because I grew up rooting for them yeah. starting in around, you know, the late 70s. Those are pretty treasured memories. You know, being at the Yankees 1999 World Series clincher is something I've never done before. Or seeing Derek Jeter's 3,000th hit, covering it for BP in person in 2010. Those were all, you know, on, on a given day, they might those might top the list. The one I chose for today, though, is watching Nolan Ryan's fifth no-hitter on an NBC Game of the Week in late 1981. Oh, I like the specificity here. This is great. Yeah, so I had watched Nolan Ryan take a no-hitter into the eighth inning, I think, at least two and maybe three times by that point. I'm pretty sure he had two in a short span in 1979 uh, at a point when I was watching a ton of baseball, both at home uh, in Salt Lake City and with my grandfather in, in, when we visited him in Walla Walla. He had two starts. One of them made a, made a cover story in Sports Illustrated. And, you know, at that by that point, I understood that uh, uh, he was tied with Sandy Koufax for the record of four no-hitters. And I'd never seen a no-hitter before. Yeah. And so, and I was religious about watching my Saturday NBC game of the week with Joe Garajola and, and Tony Kubek usually, or sometimes it was, you know, Vince Scully. Anyway, on this uh, September Saturday, Nolan Ryan had the curveball working as well as the fastball, and he was just mowing Dodgers down. Oh, it's against the Dodgers, but, you know. It was against the Dodgers. And by this point, the Dodgers, because of the, the strike, they'd split the schedule up so that teams that were leading at the time of the strike were already in the, in the playoffs. And so, right. you know, what happened in the second half didn't, didn't matter. And so, you know, I, around the middle innings when they were like, yeah, Nolan Ryan hasn't allowed a hit. I'm like, oh, boy. I guess I, I know what I'm I want to see the no-hitter here. I don't care about the Dodgers winning this game. I want to see the no-hitter. Or I want to see the no-hitter more than I wanted the Dodgers to win. And just, you know, pacing around the house. I think at some, I think there was a point where I got superstitious and was like, I'm watching this on the upstairs black and white TV instead of the downstairs TV. But yeah, I can't move. It's, it's, just, you have to stay, right? Yeah. I've read, I've read enough about superstitious to know you don't mess with this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we can sit here and say, ah, oh, superstition isn't real, but. That's never stopped me from being superstitious in sports. Yeah, so. you know, especially when you appreciate it in the context of baseball and, you know, and, and baseball fandom and, and, you know, you're 12 years old or whatever. I think I was 12 years old at the time. Yeah, I just, you know, totally embraced it. And, and, you know, he pulled it off and it was amazing. And that was one that really stuck with me. It already been a Nolan Ryan fan and, and uh, that, you know, just cemented it for me. And uh, yeah. the fact that he was still throwing no hitters when I was a, when I, you know, when I was in college over a decade later. <laughs> really remarkable. Made it all the more made. I remember actually yeah, buying another Sports Illustrator after reading about his, I guess it was his sixth no-hitter. You're like, holy <laughs> You know, uh, it's just hard to think about a player like Nolan Ryan existing today. And I guess that's another cool thing about baseball is that, you know, <laughs> these guys exist and they're real and the stats look very similar to today, except that they threw six no hitters and pitch all the innings. Yeah. And, you know, people used to slag him for his 500-ish one loss record. It's like, have you seen that strikeout rate? Yeah. Have you seen how his walk rate went down? Have you seen how utterly unfreaking hittable he was? I mean, this is... This guy was amazing, and if you didn't if you didn't understand why, you were not a very smart baseball fan. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's no wonder no wonder he got one of the highest voting percentages of all time when he went into the Hall of Fame. I mean, those people understood at least. They've not yeah. always gotten things right, but actually, I do remember that being very interesting to me. And this was the time before I'd started writing about the Hall. I believe it was the the, the 1999 class. If I remember correctly, it was it was uh, Nolan Ryan. George Brett and Robin Yount, who, geez, those were three favorites of mine. And, yeah, and Orlando Cepeda, it looks like. 
Yeah, but you know, the, the, those three were the three B, the yeah. three BBWA guys, and and those were just you know pillars of my youth. I mean, George Brett. I could go on all day about George Brett. I think he he tends to get kind of lost in terms of uh, historical appreciation. Just what a great all around ball player he was, and what a fantastic hitter he was. And I don't really know why. He had good power, obviously huge batting averages, excellent fielder, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And Robin Yount was was a guy who at one point Bill James thought he had he actually had a shot at four thousand hits because he got such an early start. Well, I did not know that. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. He was he was like he was a regular at eighteen. Um, it wasn't wasn't very good until you know, until his, his early twenties, but and he actually at one point almost almost quit before, you know, before he got any, any good, you know, beyond being able to hold down a regular job for a second division team. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he, you know, became just a fantastic player. Yeah. I mean, Nolan Ryan, I imagine that people who grew up to love baseball, like the way that baseball is today, who were watching when Nolan Ryan was at his peak, all loved Nolan Ryan because he... He was modern pitching before there was modern pitching. Like, yeah, the stuff that he figured out worked, works. Um, <laughs> like, he advanced the game, and people yes. are all trying to be Nolan Ryan at this point. It minus <laughs> the longevity, they just can't do it. But right. he he really was just a, an evolutionary player in the way that you know maybe Dr. J was in the NBA, where like yeah. the, the things that he did, no one did before. Yeah, that's an interest. That's an interesting analogy. But yeah, I think he. he he definitely prefigured a lot of a lot of what we've come to uh, appreciate about the game, and what would, unfortunately I think what we've what we've come to have you know concerns about in terms yeah. of uh, its its reduction of action, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Do you dislike pitchers who strike out and walk a lot of batters? Well, <laughs> one guy was doing that before everyone else. Yeah. No. It's it's remarkable. Like here he is. I'm I'm just I'm looking at his baseball reference page and like. Until like through his time in, in California, which was nineteen to say nineteen seventy nine, he walked fourteen percent of hit fourteen point four percent of hitters, which is that's pretty gaudy. When he got to Houston, you know, admittedly he no longer has the DH to to contend with there, but you know for the rest of his career he lowered that to ten to ten point three percent. He shaved four percentage points off of that, you know, while his strikeout rate increased. And, uh, yeah, that's, that was, oh, another favorite memory about Nolan Ryan and another NBC game of the week. His first start as an Astro, 1980. I think he's the first million dollar player, million dollar a year player at this point. He hits a freaking home run. <laughs> like, he uh, never hit a home run before. And I don't think he hit one after, but he hit one that day. That is amazing. Yeah. I did not know that, but and it was against the, it was against the Dodgers in a game that went, I think, like 16 innings. And how many of those did he pitch? Probably 13 or something. Let's see here. Hang on. I'll, let's, I'll, I'll pull up the box score right here. Jesus. Three-run homer off of off of Don Sutton, his wow. future teammate. Man, so he uh, he did it against the best, too. That's, that's yeah, he only pitched Yeah, he only pitched six innings, gave up four runs in, a, in what turned out to be a 17-inning game. Well, sounds like Nolan Ryan and your baseball fandom career intersected quite a bit, despite you not ever rooting for any of his teams, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't say I ever rooted, you know, for any of his teams other than situationally. But yeah. Uh, yeah. He was, he, he was big. Well, this was a, this is an incredible way to start this series off. I think I will struggle to get a more fun story than two intersections of Nolan Ryan, but I don't think I'll struggle to get a lot more interesting stories from Fangraphs employees and contributors and everyone. And Jay, thanks a ton for starting this off with a bang. Oh, sure. Happy, happy to help. For this segment of Fangrass Audio, I'm Ben Clemens with Jay Jaffe. Thanks a lot for joining us. This has been Fangrass Audio. Thank you to Derek Gold for joining us and to Jay Jaffe for being the first guest on Fangrass Backstories. If you enjoyed the program, consider sharing it with a friend or two. It helps us out. After you have visited the Fangrass.com shop and considered an ad-free membership, Don't forget to also check out the official Fangraphs app, free on the Apple Store and Google Play. There's also the Fangraphs newsletter, the best way to keep up with all the many cool things we have going on, free to your inbox. Thanks for listening to the show. We hope you have a good week, and we'll talk to you next time.